You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Incredible song, isn't it? That song's uh, from Mark, ch- uh, Mark chapter 10 about blind Bartimaeus, who Jesus uh, heals of his blindness and he stands up and he just cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. This morning we're talking about another blind man that the scripture records, the apostle John. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. And uh, the disciples are going to ask Jesus a question because they need a lesson in suffering and pain and understanding from the God of the universe, why does it exist? What is the purpose of it? And so they see this blind man, and um, they're going to ask God, why is he blind from birth? Why has he suffered this um, uh, malady his entire life? And before we get into that, I want, I want to give two caveats, because anytime you talk about pain publicly in a room this large, you're going to have people who no doubt came in here this morning experiencing tremendous pain. Uh, maybe you've lost somebody, uh, health, um, sexual pain, all sorts of things uh, from a past. And I want to say this, that as I speak about pain today and, and an understanding of pain and suffering, and how is it that an omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all that God could allow it, I want you to hear this. First of all, grief for pain is not sin. Grieving pain and being broken is not wrong. And if you are struggling with grief this morning, if if there is pain or suffering going on in your life right now, would you take time at the end of the service to come forward and talk with somebody? Would you take time to grab a pastor and, and let's work with it together. Let's work on it. Don't just push it under or move on today without doing that. So that's the first caveat. The second, before we begin to read John 9, is I want to talk to you a little bit about the justice of God. The justice of God. You see, when we think of God's justice as Americans, we often think of American justice, don't we? We associate God and justice and the justice of Americans together, God and country. When the towers were attacked on 9-11 and uh, everything went on there, I was in college and I remember that feeling of saying, let's go get them. Like such an unprovoked evil attack on innocence. Let's go get him. And uh, George Bush, our president, said essentially the same thing. We will bring justice to those who have brought these atrocities upon us. And it's one thing for a country to bring justice upon evil. That's a government's job. That's a military's job is to bring justice. So I'm not speaking against it. What I want to speak against this morning and what I want to clarify in your mind is that the justice of America or of any civilization is not unanimous and the same as God's justice as the justice we're called to as uh, sons and daughters of Christ. That's not the same. And that's difficult because you were, grow- you were born and brought up in a culture that sort of puts the two together. And so I'm going to talk about that this morning. But I want you to see God's justice before we begin. Before we begin to talk about pain and suffering, I want you to see what God says is justice. And I had it here. I had all the verses here, but they are not showing up. Let me see if I refresh it. There they are. 
Psalm 82, 3. If you're taking notes, I'll, I'll, I'll give the reference so you can go and just jot the reference down. What is biblical justice? Psalm 82, 3. Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good and seek justice. What is that? Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He will rise up and show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And lastly, Jeremiah 21, 12. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn uh, with no one to quench it because of your evil doings. What's God's justice? Is God's justice for the oppressor or the oppressed? It's for the oppressed. It's for the oppressed. God's justice is not that those who do evil would be punished or shunned or cast out or beaten, but his justice for you and I from the beginning of time has never changed Old Testament to New Testament. It is for the oppressed. It is for the widow and the orphan and the one who is robbed and the one who is destitute and the one who is wrongly convicted and wrongly beat up or cast out. His justice has always been that way. His justice is to show mercy and grace as it says. God's justice is not America's justice. But how then is it possible that I would grow up with this idea and this mindset that the two are sort of one and the same? That's not just my time and culture, too. I can see it throughout history, World War I, World War II, Vietnam. Every major war we've had, every even minor skirmish we've had, Christians have gotten behind the idea of justice, a good overcoming evil. And we look and we take a stance and we say morally here, America is in the good, in the right, and this country or this ideology is in the wrong. And so we will give and bring God's justice upon you. How did we ever get the idea that God's justice was for the oppress, for the oppressor and not the oppressed? Well, uh, I, I recommended a video to you a little few weeks ago called God in Your Brain by Tim Jennings. And there's a second part to it, which is talks about, do you, how do you see God? Do you see God as a dictator or a designer? A dictator or a designer? And in it, how you see him will influence the glass, the lens through which you see him will influence everything else you believe about God. So if the church grew and exponentially grew by tens of thousands of people in the first few decades, right? And we know that it did. And it grew because people, the Christians, were showing justice. They were not building an army to defeat Rome and those who were throwing them in the Colosseum. They were not going and building walls around an area outside the city and defending those walls. They were loving the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the cast out, the mentally damaged, all of that. They were bringing them in and loving them. When their enemies would come against them, they would not fight. They would lay their life down for what they believed. No, no greater love is this than a man would lay his life down for a brother. And so the world saw it. 
the world took notice and Christianity took off and began to spread. And then there was an emperor, and his name was Constantine. And he saw Christianity, and as he's ruling Rome, he saw the benefit of getting on board with Christianity as well. Because it was taken off and it was taken over. And so as he is emperor and ruler of the greatest civilization of that time, he began to infuse imperial Roman law with Christian law. What is Christian law, by the way? The law of love. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, all of the law could be summed up in this word. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love. Love encompasses the law because love at its very nature and definition is selfless. It is serving others. It is giving. That is the purpose of love. And one of the things Jennings points out, since he's a neuroscientist and a doctor, it's amazing, really interesting videos, is he points out that love is a reciprocal thing and that God didn't just make us to operate on the, on the law of love, but the entire world operates on the law of love. So look at the oceans. The oceans give up their, uh, they dissipate, right? And that goes up to the clouds and the clouds gather and bring rain down to the land and fills the levees and the rivers and streams and those pour back out into the ocean. It's cyclical. You and I, we exhale carbon dioxide and we breathe in oxygen. Trees breathe in carbon dioxide and exhale what? Oxygen. So if we look at the law and we understand, so if that's the law, it's this reciprocal giving, and that God's justice is for the oppressed, not the oppressor, then you can understand and you can see that if somebody breaks or transgresses God's law, then their inherent penalty is what? Death. You know that famous verse, the wages of sin is death? You and I always think of that verse and we think of some sin, like committing an act of sin, stealing, lying, cheating, robbing, whatever. We, we think of a sin. But to transgress God's law would mean to break the original design in which he created it for. So does that person need God's justice? If someone decides to put a bag over their head and say, I'm not giving those trees my carbon dioxide, Mm -mm, it's mine. I'm going to keep it. And so they begin to breathe into said bag. What's the inherent consequence of that? Do you need to come by and just hit them with a stick? Like, bam, why'd you do that? Because you're transgressing the law. You can't transgress that law. If somebody, as Jennings says, you walk into a room and someone has put a rope around their neck and they kick the chair out, do you stop and bring a trial in to try them? To look at the evidence? Do you begin to punish them and yell at them and chastise them? They have broken the law of respiration. They've broken that law. And justice would demand that they pay the penalty. Or is there already a natural inherent penalty in breaking the law? And what you would do is run up and grab them and try to save them. You see, that's what Christ is concerned with. That's what the designer, the creator of this world is concerned with. He's concerned with coming in and grabbing you in the midst of breaking his law and picking you up and saving you. What does he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand that the very laws that they are breaking, that the very uh, actions they are performing, they are, they are 
bringing upon themselves death. They don't understand that. So, Father, would you forgive them? If I could, I would run to each one of them and pick them up and remove the noose from around their neck because they don't understand. That is God's justice. His justice is for the oppressed. His justice is that all of these faces in here that call themselves Christians would walk out these doors and be more concerned with those in our life and our community that are oppressed than those who are oppressing others. They've already sealed their fate, God said. Those who oppress, those who push down, they've transgressed the law of love. They've transgressed God's laws and the inherent penalty due them is heading their way. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? So often growing up in this country, we associate America's law of justice with uh, God's law, and they're completely the opposite. And you can see how throughout history, if you look at um, texts and historical documents throughout history, how that little tiny infusion from Constantine of imperial Roman law into sort of scripture and teaching, you can see how it has completely taken the self-sacrificial law of love of God, the kingdom of love, right? God's kingdom is a kingdom of love and how it has taken it and just turned us completely the opposite direction. The Crusades, was, was that about a kingdom of love? What about the Dark Ages? Was that about a kingdom of love? What about the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s here in America and the church? Were we about a kingdom of love? No. We were about a kingdom of justice, about shutting down those who would break God's law, delivering penalty to those who would break God's law. So you need that understanding so we can talk this morning about this blind man that the disciples and Jesus come upon. And this is, this is the scripture. John 9, 1 through 12. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a blind, a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming, and when no one can work, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, it just looks like him. But he himself insisted, no, I am that man. How then are your eyes open, they demanded. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it in my eyes. He then told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know. So as we address this subject of pain and suffering this morning, you, it's a difficult subject to address, as I said at the beginning, because you don't exactly address it with sorrow or elation, but there's sort of this reverence of how do I bring this before people who have experienced great pain and difficulty? How do we talk about it in such a way that whether you're in a place that is great right now or a place of suffering, 
that you can hear truth, right? And so as we enter in this this morning, I just want to say this. This is the same question the disciples are asking Jesus. And if you had a chance to ask Jesus one question to sit and say, God, please explain to me why you allow all of this suffering. It's a pretty great question to ask. And we actually multiple times throughout the Gospels get to see this scenario played out and Jesus answers it and he answers it the same way every time. And so they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, neither it happened so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. So right off the bat, we're we're presented with two false understandings of pain. We're two false understandings, right? And Keller calls them the anger track and the guilt track. The anger track says this, was it his parents who did this to him? Is it his parents' fault that he was born this way? Did, did they sin? Were they, did they have him out of wedlock? And because of that, God punished their child with blindness. How often do we still to this day go with an argument like that? I'm this way and I'm suffering because my parents were terrible people or non-existent or did this to me or that to me. And so that is why I go through so much pain and suffering. And it brings about anger in my life. I'm hurting, I'm suffering because of what someone else has done. Another approach is the scapegoat. We look at God and we say, why is my life this way? I see other people who are way worse than me and they aren't nearly as bad off as me. You ever said that one? Have you seen my neighbor? Have you listened to the music they listen to, God? Come home at two in the morning, short skirts. No, my skirts go past my knee just the way Jesus would have wanted it. And yet, and yet, they have new cars and they're always happy. And I'm sitting over here struggling with everything. Anger track. Anger track is a result and a look of pain and suffering that it is someone to blame. Someone is to blame, either my parents or God or a friend or a boss or a relative. Sometimes it gets worse when you become a Christian. The anger track gets worse because you came to Christianity, you gave your life to the Lord, you're even giving your money to God now, your time to God, and guess what? Crud still keeps happening in your life. And you're like, what? What? I gave you all of this and my time and my life and my energy and I even gave up listening to good music and now I listen to Christian music. (laughs) And you still do this to my life? Yeah, Christians sometimes suffer way worse with the anger track. Uh, I mean, people suffer when they become Christians way worse because all of a sudden we felt that we're owed something. The second one is guilt. Maybe this man was born blind because he sinned. Now this one's fantastic. Because what they're saying is that God looked into the future of this man, knew that he would be a sinner, and so struck him with blindness at birth as penalty for what he would do later on. Now, that kind of sounds funny, and we think, oh, that's ridiculous. But no, we don't. The guilt track is so evident in every single one of our lives. Actually, the guilt track is evident in the entire world, all 7 billion plus of us, in understanding how God delivers punishment for our sin. We believe that there is a correlation between my sin and the punishment of God coming down upon me, as if I did two sins today, so God gave me two pieces of punishment. I stole three cookies, so I got three pieces of punishment. And we look at sin as a one-to-one correlation that God is zapping us. So God must have looked at this guy and said, he's going to just look at all sorts of things he shouldn't. And so I'm going to just strike him with blindness. If that were true, every man in this room would be blind. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, guys. Sorry to out you. And that's their question. So which is it, God? Did his parents sin? Or was it that he was such a wicked sinner, God just struck him with blindness at the beginning of his life? And the crazy thing about this is, the crazy thing about this is, that both of those views of God's discipline and understandings of pain have created religious um, denominations in Christianity. Did you know that? The ideologies behind the anger track is more of a conservative ideology, right? And so what we see there is we see people come and they start with the whole uh, faith healing. If you have enough faith, you can be healed. Have faith, have faith, have faith. My wife told a story the other night of a church her brother was going to a long time ago and she had the flu and he brought some leaders of the church over to her house and they prayed over her and they said, how do you feel? Like I have the flu. <laughs> well, did you have faith? I thought so. We'll have more of it and we'll pray again. So they prayed again and how do you feel now? Still have the flu. And they said, well, you just don't have the faith. We can't do anything and they left. Now, what do you do with that when the world believes that that's how God operates? What do you do when that is the message that God's church, his people, are sending out to an unbelieving world? Well, sorry, you couldn't muster up enough faith to heal your your sickness. We'll go to find someone who can. Think about that. The other one, the guilt track, takes the ideology of... um, takes the ideology of guilt and it says if you're sick and if you don't have faith and uh, someone has hurt you or someone has put this upon you then uh, the only way to get resolution is to sue them or to get uh, back at them and so we are a country that loves to sue one another we will sue somebody so quick it'll make your head spin before we forgive them Because we feel that, okay, once I can get my money or I can get what's coming to me, then I can begin to heal. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. Once you begin to forgive them, that's when you begin to heal. But that's how those two ideologies have been born. They've both created different denominations. By the way, one of the things Jennings says in this this conference he's at is 34,000 denominations. 34,000 Christian denominations. Just let that sink in for a second. 34,000. Do you think we have a problem? Do you think we're in unity? Do you think when Christ said, I will return when my kingdom and my gospel has been spread all over the world, that we're spreading the same gospel with 34,000 different denominations? I don't think so. In Luke 13, the same issue comes up. Remember, I said this isn't the only place he talks about it. Jesus, have you heard about the tower that fell down on, in another town and it killed a bunch of people, right? Terrible. A tower fell on a group of people and they're asking Jesus, were those people worse sinners than the other ones who were around them, but the tower didn't kill them? <laughs> Remember I said I, I, love, I love Jesus and his sarcasm? His response was, no, but repent, lest ye also perish. (laughs) No, they did not die. They were not worse off than the people who didn't die. But here's the deal. You should probably repent in case other towers start falling. I would repent if I were you. It's not the reason you'll die, but the rock hitting you on the head, that'll be the reason you die. And you should repent before that happens, lest you walk around areas with lots of towers. 
<laughs> Jesus, what is the correlation between pain in this world and the goodness of God? I mean, that's the real question. That's the big why that everyone's trying to get at. What's the correlation? And here's what Jesus is constantly doing. He is constantly making you look at the unexamined premises in your life. I'm going to repeat this because you need to understand. The unexamined premises means the basis for which you view and make decisions, right? And so the unexamined premise here that the disciples have is this, that God owes me comfort. Think about it. Why else would you ask the question unless you thought you were owed something different? Why am I suffering unless you thought you were owed comfort? If you knew, if you did not think you were owed comfort, then the suffering is just your lot. It's just where you're at in that moment in time. But if you felt that an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God owes you something, well, if he's all of those things, then what he owes me is some level, some modicum of comfort. And so this is what Jesus is wanting them to examine. The unexamined premise behind the question is, I assume God owes me comfort. So let's examine this premise. So I have a God. He created me. He sustains me. I don't breathe in or breathe out without him upholding it. He knows the hairs on my head. He knows the moment I will die. He knows everything about me. He brings into my life everything that is good. What, did, what do I owe him? What do I owe someone who does, who upholds my very breath, who keeps the universe together, who, who keeps the physics that we understand in gravity and life attainable here? What do you owe him? You can't take your next breath. You can't blink your eyes. Everyone's going to blink right now. Without him sustaining it. What do you owe him? But that's not the question we ask. No, instead, what we do is every day of our life, we resent his interference. Why do I always get caught for going 80 miles over the speed limit? Or eight, whatever. Why do I always get caught for doing this? Why is it that I always get sick whenever I'm around sick people? Why is it, why is it, why is it, God, why, 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 why? Don't interfere, stop interfering. Leave me alone, let me be. Until I need you, I'll let you know when you need to interfere, God. Planes going down over the ocean. Go interfere. Shooters get ready to walk into school. You can go interfere now, God. Go interfere. Let me tell you how to do this thing that we call pain and suffering because, God, you are messing it up. And why the heck haven't you just kicked Satan's butt yet? I thought you were supposed to be more powerful than him. Why do you let him terrorize this earth? I thought you died on the cross to redeem all of us or something like that. Why can't we be living in the new heavens and the new earth now? What's with you? What are you waiting for? Does any of this sound familiar? That's how we talk to God. He's given you thousands of chances to give yourself to him. And again and again, we thwart his loving authority. We thwart his position. We do not give what is owed him. We just expect what is owed us is comfort. And whether you ever thought about it or not, that's how you thought of God, that you were owed comfort. And when sin or uh, disease or anything comes into your life that threatens that comfort, one of the first places we get mad is God. 
because wasn't he supposed to protect us from that? Wasn't he supposed to keep us from these things that threaten our comfortable way of life? And the funny thing is this, as I was talking with someone between services, we love to pull things from the Bible to prove we're going to have a good life, right? Like health and wealth churches, they love Jeremiah 29, uh, 31, 11, or 31. I don't even know because I, I, I hate how it gets used. But I know the plans for you. I, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper. They love pulling those verses, even though it's pulled completely out of context. They love pulling verses where God says, I'm going to pour out upon you riches and all of this stuff. Well, then why don't we pull, why don't we go ahead then and pull the fact that every single disciple lived in uncomfortable life and was murdered for their faith. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> slow your roll there, hotshot. Let's, let's slow down. Let's go back to that Jeremiah verse. What was that? I have plans to prosper you. Every single disciple counted knowing and following Christ as more important than their own safety and comfort. Let's pull that one. You see, the, when you have an unexamined premise that God owes you suffering, when suffering and pain come into your life, you look at them through this unexamined premise. And God, in most humanities, in most human life, will take the brunt of the blame and the cursing and the hatred. And that's because, and third caveat, this is not to make anyone feel guilty or shame for anything like this. this is just presenting the truth and let God, let his spirit move in you. But that's because men and women who claim to have a life that has been supernaturally changed by God still live the same way as those who haven't, still value the same things as those who haven't. They val we value our comfort, our time, our safety, our money, our security more than we value the justice of God, taking care of the oppressed looking out for those, the widow, the orphan, the needy. And so the world is confused by a God that we worship and we raise our hands to. And meanwhile, there are people in here who have been hurt by loved ones and betrayed and atrocious things have happened and rapes and all sorts of things that you go, how in the world could God allow that? They were crying out to God in the midst of it for him to stop it, and he didn't. How can he be good? Well, Jesus says here, why, why all the suffering? Jesus' answer is neither of those things. It was not the man or his parents. It's so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. And this is what I'll close on here. Suffering is governed by God's will. All suffering is there to display and to further the, the redemptive work of God in our life. Verses in Lamentations 3 show us where it says God hates our affliction. He is sad with us in our affliction. He didn't design the world to be full of pain. He designed it to be in harmony and balance with us. He designed it that it was him and then us and then nature. And we said, no, 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 I want to be up with you. And so we took the cog out of the machine and we placed it in a different part of the machine and everything's gone haywire. And then we're mad at him because he hasn't put it back together for us. It was not God's design. It was not his design. And yet, and yet, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, 
All pain and all suffering is governed by God's will, and all of it, all of it has meaning. Every ounce of pain you have experienced and suffered through has meaning and has a purpose behind it. If you will let God redeem it, if you will let him redeem it, it has meaning. And that's one of the hardest things for us to do because in order to let him redeem it, I have to let go of it. Which if you remember a month or so ago, I talked about forgiveness and what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is canceling a debt, right? Which means if I'm gonna let God redeem my pain, I have to cancel any debt that I see to him or the person who caused me the pain in order for him to redeem it. And that's hard. That's hard because our culture, our life, everything says, no, hang on to it. In Genesis 50, we see the story of Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery. Potiphar's wife tried to accuse him of rape. He was thrown into prisons for years. All of it, he could have cursed God for years for what God was allowing in his life. And yet we know that in the end, it was because of all that he was able to be in a position that when the famines came, he was able to save his brothers and his sisters and his family. I don't minimize any pain you're going through right now. I don't, I don't minimize the grief you're going through. I don't even have answers when people come to me and say, explain to me how when I was on my knees before God, begging him to change the situation, and it just happened over and over again, how can he be good? And the only thing I can say, and I can say from experience, is that until you can give it back to him, until you can say, Lord, I live in a broken world that you came and entered into to redeem me out of, until you can give it back to him, it will always be your pain. But when you give it to him, he takes it and says, now it's mine. And I will replace it with my spirit. I will replace it with the fruits and the gifts of my spirit in your life. A Christian understanding of suffering is though God does not want suffering, it's not part of his design, he governs everything, therefore suffering is never for nothing, right? That's the Christian understanding of suffering. John 17 tells us that when Jesus is there at the end, he says, Lord, the work is finished. On the cross, he says, it is finished. What's finished? What's finished? What work? Redemption. Redemption, the redeeming, the buyback, right? The word redeem means to buy back out of slavery. Christ said, it is finished. It is done. I have paid the price. Let me ask you something. Did God kill Jesus? Did the Father kill Jesus, right, as penalty? Did Jesus satisfy the wrath of an almighty, angry God? Did he need to kill his son in order that uh, he can have a relationship with us, so he needed to kill somebody. He's such a violent God, he had to kill somebody. And Jesus was like, whoa, dad, back off, kill me, and then you can save all of them. So God's like, good, I'm gonna kill you so hard. (laughs) (laughs) One brave lady says no. You know, when I present it like that, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? You go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. 
Do you know that's exactly, exactly how it's been preached and how it's been written down? Over and over for centuries. God, in order to appease his great wrath, uh, in, uh, Jesus became the penal substitution, meaning the one who took our place, and then God poured out his wrath upon him for all of sin. God didn't kill Jesus. I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. I just want you to think about it because it affects your view of God, whether you see him as a dictator, the imperial Roman law, or you see him as the father, the designer, who loves you. And even though you deserve death because you've put yourself at the end of a rope, he comes in and picks you up. Even though justice, a man-made justice, would require that you pay the penalty for breaking the law, he comes and picks you up. We're going to close with communion here. I'm going to invite the band out. And communion is all about the suffering of Christ, is it not? Communion is all about the suffering that Christ came and took upon himself. That when the devil put him to death and thought he had defeated God. Oh, we can get into some fun theology here. When the devil thought he had laid at his feet the body of Jesus Christ and killed him, Christ said, it's just begun, buddy. You have just set into motion the exact thing that I wanted. Because my body and my blood hold a redemptive nature and quality to them that is going to set free my people, my creation when we partake of communion together and we gather together in a place like this we are proclaiming the suffering of Christ unto ourselves just as we proclaim the salvation of Christ unto ourselves and we partake of it together because we remember together his body that was broken we remember the blood that was poured out so that what we could not do with the law he did in his death burial and resurrection so as we bow our heads there and we pray, we're going to partake of communion together. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, then we invite you to partake with us. If you don't, we invite you to come up and pray with a prayer partner. See a pastor. We just ask that you abstain from communion during this time. But if you want to come up and get prayer at the altar, if you need prayer, um, when, when people are getting up, just raise your hand. If you need prayer and people are getting up and moving around you, but you need prayer, raise your hand. We've got people who will come out to you right where you're at or I'll have somebody sitting near you and I'll have them pray with you. So we're going to spend the next five, ten minutes doing that and then we'll go home. Let's pray. Father, we bless the bread and the juice, Lord, that without your body is just bread and juice, but because we are gathered here today in this place, Lord, we know it is your body and your blood that when we partake of it, we receive your suffering unto ourselves, that we, we partake in that with you. And Lord, it should reveal a gratitude. It should reveal a debt, Lord, and an awe that we, we fall down before you and we praise and worship you because you loved us when we hated ourselves. You loved us when we hated you. And so we come together now and we're thankful for that. Jesus' name.